0: Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com/wondery. That's rocketmoney.com/wondery. rocketmoney.com/wondery.
1: The Russian government is running a criminal syndicate. I mean is, is that going too far?
2: No. I think increasingly today, the Russian government is a criminal syndicate. It's a rogue state when it comes to cyber activity, and it's causing harm to countries, companies, and people
3: throughout the world. Well, this is Omaha, Nebraska, and the FBI reported that the first infections they found were here in Omaha.
1: And then you begin to see what?
3: Show it. Well, you see where all the infected computers were um, that were part of this criminal network.
4: Oh, my goodness. Whoa. On what looks like a miniature football field, BAME pours a solution containing ciprofloxacin, or cipro, a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Then BAME drops E. coli bacteria at both ends of the table. In just a few days, some of the E. coli bacteria figure out how to resist the cipro.
5: This is evolution happening. Each one of these little things that you see on it, that's a mutant that's a mutant that's developed resistance and started to grow.
4: The E. coli has already outwitted Cipro.
5: In 12 days.
6: These giant stone statues have fascinated and confounded visitors for centuries. Dutch explorers named this place almost 300 years ago when they spotted it on Easter Sunday. It has soul. It has life. They're alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. In the middle of the Pacific, Easter Island is very difficult for most people to reach until tonight. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper.
4: I'm Holly Williams. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those
7: stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love.
1: The release of special counsel Robert Mueller's long-awaited report last Thursday created new headlines, but did nothing to lessen the country's partisan divide. One fact, however, that at least U.S. intelligence officials agree on is that Russia's cyber espionage efforts constitute one of the greatest threats we face as a nation. Tonight, we're going to tell you about one of the most insidious aspects of that threat, one that goes well beyond what Robert Mueller documented in his investigation. It is the growing and unlikely partnership between Russian government spymasters and Russian cyber criminals. One of the first public hints of this unholy alliance came coincidentally when President Obama imposed sanctions on Russia's intelligence agencies for interfering in the 2016 presidential election. At the same time, and little noticed, he also sanctioned two big-time Russian criminal hackers. How the FBI came to unmask them is a great detective story and a rare window into this marriage made in hell.
2: What you're seeing is the world, one of the world's most sophisticated intelligence operations when it comes to cyber espionage, using the criminal groups for their intelligence ends and protecting them from law enforcement.
1: John Carlin, the assistant attorney general for national security during the Obama administration, echoes what current U.S. officials have confirmed to us about the Russians. So the intelligence agencies are, what, piggybacking on the criminal enterprise?
2: Increasingly, you cannot tell which is which when it comes to the criminal and the intelligence agencies. So one day, the same crook may be doing something purely to make a buck, but that same crook may be directed by a trained intelligence operative using the same tools and techniques to steal information from them for the goals of the state.
1: Why would the government rely on crooks. They could do their own intelligence.
2: By relying uh, increasingly on criminals and the tools that they use, they make it really difficult to figure out who did it. They want to hide their tracks. For years, they were able to
1: hide their tracks behind the criminal exploits of this Russian hacker, Evgeny Bogachev, one of the FBI's most wanted cyber criminals today, with a $3 million bounty on his head.
8: He is the most prolific most dangerous and most notorious cyber criminal in history.
1: Dave Hickton is the former U.S. attorney in Pittsburgh who oversaw the government's
8: investigation
1: of Bogachev, which began in 2009. In the beginning, did you know anything about his connections to the Russian government?
8: We were very much in the dark about who he was, where he was. He was a phantom over the Internet, effectively.
1: A phantom with no known address or nationality who went by the online aliases of Slavic and Lucky12345. What was known was that he had created a computer program that enabled him to steal victims' online credentials, which he then used to drain their bank accounts. It was called Game Over
8: Zeus. If you were infected, it was game over.
1: Did he just do individuals, or did he go in and disrupt companies?
8: Oh, both. Uh, You know, he was particularly prolific with banks and businesses at the time of payroll.
1: To help identify Lucky 12345, the Feds brought together cybersecurity experts from around the world, including Microsoft, which was already looking into this because so many of its clients had been hacked. So this is the Microsoft Cybercrime Center.
3: It is. It's the home of our Digital Crimes Unit.
1: Tom Burt is a vice president of cybersecurity at Microsoft, which was enlisted to understand how Game Over Zeus worked and to identify where the infected computers were located.
3: Well, this is Omaha, Nebraska, and the FBI reported that the first infections they found were here in Omaha.
1: And then you begin to see what?
3: Show us. Well, you see where all the infected computers were um, that were part of this criminal network. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. These are the infected devices connecting to the Internet throughout the United States that were part of this game over Zeus um, criminal enterprise. And now you can see how it was really a global a global network
1: a global network of a million infected computers under the complete control of this cyber thief. You know what's almost as interesting as where the red dots are? is where they're
3: not. That is interesting. <laughs> so look at Russia. It's not at all unusual for these criminals who operate these kinds of networks to actually design their code so it will not infect computers in the country they live in.
1: As Microsoft investigators worked with the FBI to map the spread of Game Over Zeus, they also reverse-engineered its computer code. And what they saw stunned them. A thicket of interconnected, infected computers around the world that made it nearly impossible to trace back to its creator, Lucky12345.
3: We looked at it and said, whoa, how do we stop this?
1: And he was just hiding behind all of this. The Wizard of Oz behind everything.
3: The very rich Wizard of Oz. What Microsoft figured out was a way to
1: pull back the wizard's curtain.
3: We created computers that we called honeypots that we actually got onto the criminal network. We got them infected so that we could then see all the traffic, all the communication that was passing through the network.
1: And once you were able to do that, was it just a matter of time before you broke them down.
3: Once we had that information and we understood how the network worked, we gave that to the FBI. They then had a lot of work to do before they were able to identify who the real bad guy was.
1: The FBI turned to other security experts for help. One of them was Brett Stone Gross of the cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike. When you started to analyze Game Over Zeus, How advanced, how sophisticated, Brett, was it?
5: From every angle, it was innovative and brilliant. And what they did is they had designed a system that was very difficult for both researchers and law enforcement to take action against.
1: How long did you track him?
5: Yeah, we had tracked him close to 10 years.
1: You chased this guy for 10 years? Yep. As the FBI dug deeper... They realized his criminal operation was every bit as innovative and brilliant as his computer code. Lucky 12345 had assembled something law enforcement had never seen before, a syndicate of super cyber criminals looting banks and businesses with impunity.
8: We were chasing a group of individuals which was known as the business club, which was a collection of some of the most skilled and dangerous cyber criminals in the world who had formed what was basically a 21st century uh, mafia don club for the internet
1: did you ever determine how much money they actually stole
8: we stopped counting at 100 million dollars in the united states and i really think the answer is he stole as much as you can count
1: after years of investigation They were no closer to identifying the mastermind until finally they got a tip from a source. So you really didn't catch him with whatever tools we have. You had to have a human being walk in like in the old days.
8: And this confidential human source came forward and said, I think this email address, which traces back to Russia, is going to be the ticket to find him. And that proved true.
1: Because the email address was how Lucky12345 communicated with his criminal syndicate. And by connecting many dots, the FBI was eventually able to identify the mastermind as Evgeny Bogachev, a raccoon-eyed 30-year-old whose last known address was here in Anapa, a Russian resort city on the Black Sea. Online photos show him on his boat, with his wife and with his spotted Bengal cat in his matching pajamas. The feds finally had their man. Meanwhile, they had analyzed his computer server, where, says former Justice Department official John Carlin, they saw that Bogachev had begun searching
2: around for targets outside his criminal activities. We saw them doing things like right before Russia was going to invade Ukraine. We saw that same network being used to collect information on Ukraine. And we saw terms like top secret or Department of Defense being used as search terms or queries.
1: U.S. Department of Defense?
2: Yes. Well, what other agencies was he looking into? There were queries targeting the FBI. And Why the FBI? It seems like they were looking for information that they could use to then compromise or try to f- turn FBI agents. All
1: of which led U.S. national security officials to conclude that Bogachev had become an asset of Russian intelligence, though U.S. investigators had no concrete proof of Moscow directing him. They would get proof in another case involving this Russian cyber thief, Alexei Balan, who was indicted in 2017, along with two Russian intelligence officers charged with directing him. According to the indictment, Balan didn't start working with Russian intelligence until after the U.S. asked Russia for help in arresting him for identity
2: theft and other cyber crimes. This was a period where we were looking for cooperation from the Russians. Not only did they not help, they signed him up as an intelligence asset after we asked for help.
1: (laughs) So you identify him for them as a brilliant hacker, and then they sign him up to work for them the the way they did with Bogachev?
2: Yeah, not what you were looking for with cooperation, right? And then were you able to see
1: that he was... uh, working for intelligence, trying to gather
2: information for the state. And that's the incredible detail in this indictment. And this is the first case we were able to show it. He's getting direct requests from Russian intelligence officers, and they are providing him secret information that he can use to evade detection and arrest.
1: Balan then proceeded to commit one of the most far-reaching hacks ever, from 2014 to 2016, into Yahoo, one of the world's busiest Internet sites. That was gigantic, that Yahoo
2: hack. People estimate 500 million to a billion uh, email uh, addresses. So the Russians
1: have their eyes on half a billion-plus
2: people's computers, And this guy's siphoning off money. They still let him be the the crook that he wants to be, Mm -hmm. but then they'll also use that same trove of information to target people they might be interested in for intelligence purposes.
1: People, he says, like business leaders and foreign government officials, in order to steal classified information or to search for something compromising to blackmail them, as documented in both the Balan and Bogachev cases. Are they the only two cases that we know about?
2: If you look at the most wanted cyber criminals, it's a who's who of Russians.
1: Now, you mentioned Putin. Is, is he aware of all of this? Has he personally sanctioned this kind of activity?
2: There's no doubt that he is both aware of it and has personally sanctioned some of the activity. Wow, This is a kleptocracy. This is a government by theft. And the thing that matters the most is that you do what the Don wants, what the head of the crime family wants. And here the head of the crime family is Putin. The Russian
1: government is running a criminal syndicate. I mean, is is that going too far?
2: No. I think increasingly today, the Russian government is a criminal syndicate. It's a rogue state when it comes to cyber activity, and it's causing harm to countries, companies, and people throughout the world.
4: When antibiotics were first used in the 1940s, they were a revolution in medicine. Before that, diseases like pneumonia and tuberculosis were often a death sentence, and even an infected scratch could be fatal. Since then, antibiotics have saved hundreds of millions of lives. But now many of these drugs are becoming ineffective. Scientists say it's a problem of our own making – We've used antibiotics so freely, some bacteria have mutated into so-called superbugs. They've become resistant to the very drugs designed to kill them. A study commissioned by the British government estimates that by 2050, 10 million people worldwide could die each year from antibiotic-resistant bacteria. That's more than currently die from cancer. To understand the danger posed by superbugs, we start with the story of David Ricci. In 2011, at the age of 19, David Ricci volunteered to teach orphans in Kolkata, India. His walk to work ran alongside these train tracks.
0: I remember the trains, when they would pass by, were just really close to you and had caught my sleeve and threw me in front of it. How far were
4: you dragged for?
0: Probably about 50 metres.
4: And was the pain immediate?
0: My leg was pinned between two of the wheels. And as soon as I tried to stand up and realized that, you know, my leg was like hamburger.
4: Richie survived the amputation of his leg and a medical evacuation home to Seattle, only for his doctors to discover a microscopic organism that could kill him.
0: My doctor said, David, I need to tell you something really hard. Um, You have an infection we've never seen before.
4: Doctors in the U.S. hadn't seen much of this.
0: They'd never seen it. They didn't, they didn't even know how to treat it.
4: The infection growing inside Ricci's leg was caused by bacteria with genetic mutations that turned them into superbugs, resistant to 19 different antibiotics. His doctor told us that in desperation, he had to reach back in time to an antibiotic called colistin that was discovered in the 1940s. For decades, it was rarely used, because in high doses, it can cause irreversible organ damage. Ricci suffered kidney failure three times. What did it do to you?
0: It felt like my organs were disintegrating. It just felt really, really strange, something I'd never felt before, like I was dying from the inside out.
4: But after six months, the colistin helped beat back Ricci's infection, and he learned to walk again. We went to the neighbourhood where the superbug that nearly killed David Ricci was found in 2009, in Delhi, India.
9: This is old Delhi.
4: Ramanan Laxminarayan is an economist and a senior research scholar at Princeton University. He's been tracking the rise of superbugs for nearly 20 years. He says what happened to Ricci was more than just bad luck. It was the result of our misuse of antibiotics. Well, you know.
9: We took antibiotics for granted. We thought that we could use them like sugar pills, that they were safe, and that resistance was just something that biologists worried about that you'd never actually see in real life.
4: You've called antibiotics a, a shared global resource. What, what do you mean by that?
9: It's a lot like, you know, the fish in the ocean. If you fish, there's less fish for everyone else. So every time you use antibiotics, there's less effectiveness for everyone else.
4: If there's a front line in the fight against superbugs, it's in places like this, the neonatal intensive care unit at Chacha Nehru Children's Hospital in New Delhi. 60,000 Indian babies are dying every year from drug-resistant infections. He's a little boy and he has has an infection. Yes. Dr. Mamta Jaju told us the antibiotics she routinely used 10 years ago are no longer effective. That's forced her to use colistin, the toxic last-line antibiotic given to David Ricci. So he has an infection, and the only antibiotic that it's sensitive to is colistin? Colistin. That's the only antibiotic that will work? Yes. And is he likely to recover? Yeah. So
1: he's
0: improving? He's improving. The baby's improving. They started opening the eyes, looking here
4: and there, and hopefully by tomorrow we'll take him out of the ventilator. That's good news for this baby. But the World Health Organization warns our arsenal of antibiotics is running out, and we could be facing a post-antibiotic era.
9: Much of what we consider modern medicine depends on effective antibiotics. It's not just about newborns dying of infections in faraway places.
4: Are there modern medical procedures that we take for granted that simply wouldn't be possible if we didn't have access to effective antibiotics?
9: Everything that we think of, whether it's cancer chemotherapy, transplants, hip replacements, knee replacements, colorectal surgery, all of these require effective antibiotics to perform.
4: To understand how quickly bacteria become resistant to even the most powerful drugs, we visited Harvard University biologist Michael Bain. He showed us an experiment first done in the lab of Roy Cashoni. On what looks like a miniature football field, Bain pours a solution containing ciprofloxacin, or Cipro. A broad-spectrum antibiotic. This has no this antibiotic This has no antibiotic. This one?
5: This one has just over what the bacteria are able to survive. It should kill them? It should kill them.
4: The next pool. Ten
5: times as much. OK. A hundred times as much. The centre zone
4: of the exactly table a contains times. a thousand times more Cipro than bacteria should be able to survive. Then BAME drops E. coli bacteria at both ends of the table.
5: There are about a million bacteria in there. OK, in that little drop. In that little drop. So the bacteria started both sides and they race to the centre.
4: In just a few days, some of the E. coli bacteria figure out how to resist the Cipro and survive in what should be a deadly environment.
5: And if you look very closely right here, they're starting to grow into the centre.
4: Which is the, by far the strongest antibiotic. By far the strongest. Stronger than you would ever give to a patient.
5: Exactly. And
4: yet they're beginning to evolve to mutate
5: this is evolution happening each one of these little things that you see on it that's a mutant that's a mutant that's developed resistance and started to grow
4: that means that the e coli has already outwitted cipro
5: in 12 days
4: each time we take an antibiotic bacteria can develop the same kind of resistance in our bodies which is why the overuse of the drugs is so dangerous Americans are among the highest consumers of antibiotics in the world. More than 250 million prescriptions are written every year. One third of them are necessary, according to the Centers for Disease Control. And in India and many other developing countries, antibiotic use is on the rise. And you can often buy the drugs over the counter. No prescription required. This is where your average person in Delhi would buy their medicine?
9: Yeah, exactly.
4: All you need here is the money to pay the bill. Can we get some Cipro? Do you have Cipro? For just a few dollars, we bought Ciprofloxacin and amoxicillin both vitally important antibiotics used to treat infections all over the world. And then, without even discussing symptoms, we asked for a bottle of Colistin. Colistin. The same powerful antibiotic that saved David Ricci and the babies in the intensive care unit. This is Colistin. This is Colistin. It's the last line
9: antibiotic. Absolutely. Humans
4: aren't the only ones being dosed with colistin. Ramanan Lakshminarayan took us to this poultry farm outside Delhi. Oh, watch out. Where they mix their feed with four different types of antibiotics, including colistin. Antibiotics make animals grow faster and stave off infection. It's a practice pioneered in the United States, where over a dozen different antibiotics are approved for use in farm animals. So, what is the problem with giving these chickens antibiotics?
9: If you look around us, the chicks are eating constantly. There are antibiotics in that feed, which means that their bacteria are being exposed to the antibiotics on a constant basis and constantly selecting for resistance.
4: What does that mean, selecting for resistance?
9: It means that their bacteria in those chickens are being exposed to antibiotics, which kill off the bacteria that are sensitive to the antibiotics, leaving behind only resistant bacteria which don't respond to antibiotics.
4: So it means these chickens are being accidentally bred to create superbugs?
9: Because they're being fed antibiotics every single day of their lives.
4: And once a superbug evolves in animals, it can spread to humans through soil, water and the handling or eating of meat. That's exactly what happened in China when pigs that were fed colistin developed a genetic mutation called MCR1. It makes bacteria resistant to colistin. The findings were first published in 2015. Just three years later, MCR1 was found in more than 40 countries. In 2017, 69-year-old Jeff O'Regan became one of the first Americans to be found with MCR1. He arrived at Massachusetts General Hospital delirious and with a fever of 106. So they discovered that you'd been infected with a bacteria carrying this gene MCR1.
10: Yep. I became like a f- famous person at the hospital that, It's very strange. Within a a day or two of that, uh, a lot of different doctors were coming in to visit me, asking me a lot of questions.
4: What were they asking
10: you? They were asking me where I've been uh, in the last six months, um, what my travel is, uh, you know, everything about my life.
4: Microbiologist and infectious disease doctor Sarah Turbett was worried the infection could spread so she put O'Regan in isolation. Had you ever seen MCR1 before? We had not. Uh, This was the first one that our lab had isolated. MCR1 was first spotted in, in pigs in China. How does it end up in Jeff? a great question. It's not completely clear how it ended up in
11: Jeff. It's entirely possible that he picked this up during his travel. Um, I know he's been to the Caribbean and MCR1 has been reported in the Caribbean. And so it's possible that when he was there, he ate something that maybe wasn't well cooked or he picked it up
4: and, and it just colonized his gastrointestinal tract. The Centers for Disease Control is now tracking MCR1 and told us they have found isolated cases in 19 states. The superbug is still in O'Regan's system. And with Colistin now no longer an option, he's relying on the one antibiotic left that can fight it. And if that bacteria became resistant to that one antibiotic that still works, what would happen then?
10: Right now, that's my last line of defense.
4: So you wouldn't survive without it?
10: I've been told that.
4: Some people might hear this and think, well, look, the best way to protect myself is just to not travel to India, not travel to other developing countries.
9: There are resistant bacteria that are developed in the United States itself that you're susceptible to. You know, this is a global problem. It doesn't stay confined to any single place.
4: As an individual, can I have any impact on this problem?
9: You as an individual can have a huge impact by first recognizing that Taking antibiotics inappropriately is going to do you far more harm than good. So, even if you didn't care about resistance for other people, you might consider the fact that the antibiotics won't work for you when you really need them.
6: On this Easter Sunday, we thought it would be fitting to take you on a journey to Easter Island. It's one of the most remote inhabited islands in the world far into the Pacific, 2,200 miles due west from the coast of Chile. Dutch explorers gave it its name after they spotted it on Easter Sunday in 1722. What they found has fascinated and confounded the world ever since. Giant stone statues that tower over the island's landscape. They're called moai, and as we learned our first morning on Easter Island, there's nothing quite like them anywhere else in the world. When dawn breaks on Easter Island, it is the Moai that first feel the sun. These 15 Moai at a site called Tongariki are perhaps the most famous. Carved out of volcanic rock, they're placed on a stone platform called an Ahu. The tallest is nearly 30 feet. They stand, strange, silent sentinels facing away from the sea, watching over the land and its people. At least a 1,000 moai can be found scattered across this island, which is about the size of Washington, D.C. Many more moai remain buried underground. To the descendants of those who built them, these are more than statues made of stone. They are immortal branches
12: of an ancient family tree. The moai represent an ancestor, and we believe in an ancestor that goes beyond this life, but is helping us. Guiding you Is a Moai an,
6: a distinct individual ancestor, or can it also be the family line of that ancestor? Both. Pedro Edmonds Paoa is the longtime mayor of the only town on Easter Island. So when you see the Moai today, it's not just something from the past, it's something that is alive, that has power right now.
12: Yes. We indigenous people from this island believe in that. The indigenous
6: people here believe their ancestors and family lines are represented by specific groups of Moai. Mayor Edmonds Paoa says his are at a site called Tahai.
12: My genealogy traces all the way to that site, 85 times. It goes back that far? Yes, more than a thousand years. That is
6: entirely possible. No one knows for sure the exact date the first people came here. But it's believed to have been somewhere around 800 to 1,200 years ago. Archaeological evidence indicates they sailed from an unknown island in Polynesia, a dangerous journey across more than a thousand miles of open ocean. Those first settlers brought with them their tradition of carving, but they made much smaller statues. They also brought a belief in a mystical force called mana.
12: How do you describe mana? What is mana? Mana is, uh, is, is, is beyond description. Uh, if we were to describe it of today's language, is knowledge. Knowledge. could would be interpreted as wisdom, as um, an energy that gives you strength. Do the Moai still have mana? Sure. It has soul. It has life. They're alive? Absolutely. According to legend,
6: when important islanders died, their mana flowed out of their bodies into the Moai.
12: The mana is here. The mana is here. It's a hard concept for my small uh, mind no, to imagine. For, for human like you guys from the city don't understand these things. Because mm. you worry about working like <laughs> disciplined animals. Those who believe in mana say it's not just in the moai.
6: It can be found in everything here. In the waves that constantly crash ashore. In the rocky soil. And in the green grass that blankets the island.
13: These objects, in the middle of what looks like a barren landscape, they speak to you. They draw you in. They they make you want to, to know more. I think that that's the power of them. And when you see how tall they really are...
6: Joanne Van Tilburg grass, is a UCLA grass, professor of archaeology. She's been coming here for nearly 40 years, working with local researchers and artists, excavating and cataloging the statues, trying to understand the mysteries and what she calls the magic of the Moai.
13: They're tight-lipped, these statues.
6: They don't give up their secrets easily. They don't give up
13: (laughs) their secrets easily. And they don't give them up to outsiders easily.
6: To learn the Moai's secrets, you have to start where nearly all of them were made, around the vent of a dormant volcano. This is the ancient quarry of Rana Raraku. There are some 400 Moai here, more than in any other spot on the island. The largest one, never raised upright, is almost 70 feet long and weighs at least 250 tons, as heavy as some passenger jets. Based on excavations Joanne Van Tilburg and other archaeologists have done, an analysis of soil samples and objects found around the statues... Van Tilburg believes the height of Moai construction was around 1300 to the mid-1400s, though Moai did continue to be carved until, or just after, the first contact with Europeans in 1722. I mean, is it not possible with carbon dating or other scientific techniques to know exactly when Unfortunately
13: something made? not. You can't date stone, this stone, in that manner.
6: When the first archaeological survey was done on the island in 1914, all the Moai, except those in the quarry, were found lying on the ground. There are several plausible theories how they got there. Certain statues may have simply fallen from neglect. Others were knocked over in earthquakes, and some were intentionally toppled during fighting between competing family groups. Today, some Moai are only partially visible. Just their famous faces stick out of the ground. The rest of their bodies are buried under sediment that's naturally built up over the centuries. This
13: one is at least um, only about one-third above ground.
6: (laughs) Wow, so two-thirds of this are actually below ground. Yes, yes. At first glance, the moai all look alike, but Van Tilburg says no two are the same. How are they different?
13: Well, they're different in the line of their mouth. They're different in, of course, their size and shape. They're different in their expressions, whether their head is tilted up or lowered slightly or to the side.
6: These two Moai, they're unfinished? They're unfinished. Visitors here have long debated how the Moai were made, given the Stone Age conditions on the island when the statues were being carved. Van Tilburg says the answer is all around. There are thousands of stone carving tools scattered throughout the quarry.
13: This was a handheld instrument that was used, and if you hold it, you can actually feel where people may have put their fingers, which was actually used to rough out the sculpture.
6: You can actually feel the sort of the, the hand. Yeah, you can. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that I and mean, this cool? was literally just laying 10 feet away. And you put okay. it in your
13: hand, and you can feel where the other person's hand was, who, who actually used this. Mm-hmm. When you talk about mystery and magic, that's it right there.
6: But magic alone couldn't move the moai from the quarry to sites on the coast, in some cases more than eight miles away. That took muscle and ingenuity. Van Tilburg has tested a theory she believes, that moai were placed horizontally on sleds and dragged over logs. Island legend says the statues walked, and some archaeologists have tested that theory as well, moving them upright carefully wobbling them back and forth. You may have also heard an out-of-this-world theory about space aliens making and moving the Moai. It may sound ridiculous, but it's still believed by many visitors today. You must have people asking you about extraterrestrials building these. (laughs) Yes, I do. So, I mean, I just have to ask any possibility of that (laughs) you don't believe it though. no I
2: don't believe it
6: Easter Island was annexed by Chile in 1888 half of the 8,000 people who now live here are Chilean immigrants the other half are modern descendants of those original Polynesian settlers they call themselves and the island Rapa Nui in 2017 Chile finally gave them control of the national park ...where the Moai and other important archaeological sites are located. The park covers more than 40% of the island. The island of Rapa Nui was formed out of volcanic rock starting some 3 million years ago. There are now three dormant volcanoes that dominate the landscape. This one is called Rano Kau. Cal. No one knows exactly how many archaeological sites there are on the island... ...but this place is like a living museum, constantly battered by the sun, the wind and the rain. Those three elements are, over time, destroying the moai. These statues may look as though they're solid stone, but they're actually quite porous. Joanne van Tilburg showed us a small stone. piece of but the soft really volcanic rock called tuff that, that the moai are made from.
13: Tuff has really special qualities that where it can be carved and it can be polished quite easily.
6: It's good for sculpting because it, it's with a harder stone, it's able to be chipped away easily. Correct, correct. So the very material which made, made these... Statues possible, also long-term, makes them vul- very vulnerable. Exactly. Rainwater and airborne seeds get into the pores of Tuff, gradually breaking it apart. The wind whittles the stone away over time, and further damage is done by birds and a type of algae called lichen. Some moai are in worse condition than others. Take a look at this one called Tukatori. This photograph is from 1955 when it was unearthed. This is how Tukuturi looks today.
13: The stone breaks very easily. It is just not stable.
6: Essentially, I mean, they're dissolving.
13: Yeah, they are. I mean, if they're standing out in the rain, they're melting like sugar cubes.
6: Like sugar cubes in the rain.
13: Exactly. It's that dramatic.
6: In the 1990s, with help from the Japanese government, the 15 moai at Tongariki, which had fallen or been toppled over, were reconstructed, along with the stone platform they now stand on. The UN has declared Easter Island a World Heritage Site and efforts to slow the disintegration of the statues with a chemical sealant have been underway for decades, but so far only about 20 Moai have been treated. The process is expensive, money the island doesn't have. It's also not a permanent solution. The sealant only delays the inevitable. One day, these Moai will likely disappear. Is there a plan, uh, a conservation plan, an environmental plan, for long-term in the future? No. There's not. None. Uh, None at all. Mayor Pedro Edmonds-Pauoa is frustrated. There's a lack of consensus among the Rapa Nui about how to preserve the Moai. And the island's infrastructure is under pressure from all the tourists who want to come see the statues few decades ago, there were only two incoming flights a week. Now, there are two almost every day. Thank you. Cruise ships also make regular calls, just long enough for passengers to get off the boat, grab some souvenirs, and snap a few selfies. In all, 120,000 tourists visited last year.
12: That's too much. If tourism continues to grow, is that sustainable here? No, it's not sustainable.
6: Christian moreno Paccarotti is a historian who earns his living training tour guides. Do you have concerns about the impact of
11: tourism? So, in material terms, uh, the community has never been better. But in general, it's much less friendly than it was some time ago. He says the more the island caters to tourists, the less like home it is for the people
6: whose ancestors built the Moai.
11: Today, we are kind of forced to see the statues from far away, just like the tourists that come here. People of my generation, right? We could go there and touch the statues and and be part of the statues and hug the statues. How can I explain to my son today that my son cannot do that?
6: Despite no longer being able to touch them, he still feels the same sense of wonder he's always experienced when visiting the Moai. You've been here probably thousands of a times. A thousand
11: times, yeah. No, it's still awesome. It's something that you you still feel awe when you're here. Uh, even
6: Christian Moreno Paccarotti yeah, supports the efforts to preserve the Moai, but believes it'll take more than mana and money. He has his own somewhat radical idea on how to ensure the Moai keep standing.
11: The only way to keep them alive is to keep alive the art of making and moving statues. So you would like to see the people of Rapa Nui making new Moai? That's right, because these will disappear one day. So if the art of making them is still alive, we will never lose the statues.
1: This past week, as Christians began Holy Week and Jews approached Passover, the world was horrified as fire devastated the Cathedral of Notre-Dame in Paris. By week's end, as candles were lit at seders and Easter vigils, plans were underway to rebuild Notre-Dame. Here in the United States, inspired by that commitment, donors pledged funds to rebuild three predominantly black churches torched by arsonists in Louisiana, a reminder of the fragility of structures that and the perseverance of faith. Happy Passover and a joyful Easter. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.
0: If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your
6: band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Gig Speeds, powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox. Always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.
10: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.